David, welcome. Thank you so much. As I kind of mentioned to you off the recording, I've been waiting to set this up for a long time. How are you, sir? I want to hear all about, before we get into you, your meditation retreat, because that sounded like a unique experience. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm doing well. Um, so probably about three weeks ago, I finished a 10-day silent uh, meditation retreat, um, often known as Vipassana. That's the style of meditation, but most people call it Vipassana retreat. Um, it's the second one I've done, actually. I did a 10-day four years ago, just over four years ago. I always know because it bookends. I did the meditation retreat and I met my now partner probably a couple of months after that, which I don't think those two things are completely... Um, I think there there's a there's a certain level of link there um how was it it is it was easier than the first time yeah. <laughs> that's the place first place I started it's easier than the first time but sitting for 10 hours a day meditating um 10 days in a row pretty much you know the 10 hours are all split up you don't do it all in one chunk um and most of them if you you know they're an hour and a half long often but you can get up like if you want to get up after half an hour, go for a walk for five minutes, come back. You can do that. You're not like caged in and you can't move and you can meditate in different places. You know, you can meditate in your room, in the hall, even in, they give you little meditation cells, which which I love. They're one of my favorite places to meditate. Um, it's an incredibly eye-opening experience because you're with your mind. Mm. You're with your mind, you're with your thoughts, and there's really nothing else to distract you because there's there's no talking. Um the only conversation you may have with one of the teachers, they may ask you some questions. They do ask you some questions every couple of days, asking about your practice. Um, and you're just with yourself, you're with your thoughts. And it can be, you know, at times it's really challenging. You know, you're with your thoughts and you're meditating. You're you're doing, you know, two meditations. Uh, one's just a, a kind of breath meditation. And the second one they give you after a few days is more to do with um, feeling the sensation in the body. And what I find is like a lot of, you give yourself a lot of space. So the things that have been kind of in your subconscious, they start to bubble up. Um, you start to really, you know, I found myself ruminating over certain things I'd done in the past, ways I'd been, um, which was 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 really profound actually, because a couple of things I'd like found that I was really angry about and I hadn't realized. And then I allowed me to like really look at the situation from different angles and take a lot of responsibility myself instead of being angry at the person outside of me to um, take a lot of responsibility, but also just allowed you to really observe how your mind is by default, the way that it creates stories about people, the way it gets angry about small things and big things. And when you're there in the retreat, you start to see how much it's not about the other things, the other people, it's about you and how you, create story and you react to things and you start to take more responsibility because you realize like okay maybe maybe you some people get angry when they're driving right and they get angry at other drivers and they're like oh people's driving is so bad blah 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 and then when you're in the retreat and you find yourself getting angry about things you realize it's like wow it's not it's not the other drivers it's me I'm just angry I'm looking for ways to get angry or I'm looking for ways to beat myself up that was one of my one of my patterns it's like looking for ways to compare myself to other people and then beat myself up about it how I'm doing lesser than them and um, that was definitely my experience the first time I did it that was a really humbling experience um but this time around was was a lot more about kind of going really deep into my mind and like looking at how 
I have a lot of self-doubt that that comes up for me and just like really frame that in different ways. Um, and obviously there's the um, the inevitable pain of sitting down a lot, um, which is kind of part and parcel. And, and I think it's a really, I think it's a really powerful, powerful thing to experience and be with pain and see how you react to it. Because I think it, it, it really showed me how, once again, how I deal with that pain and I'll use pain very uh, loosely as a term, discomfort, we could call it, how I deal with that in my, my life in general, you know, I distract myself from it. Like if I'm sitting and maybe I'm talking to you and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to say next. Maybe I look around the room or I, or I reach for my phone or I check some email. We distract ourselves when we feel uncomfortable. And in, in that setting of sitting, you're really like, oh shit, this is what I'm doing all the time. I'm always trying to distract myself when I get uncomfortable. And how does that impact my life? And you can yeah. see it for, you see it, you really get to be with that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Because I do think much of us experience the world, because much of our lives are through 2D, essentially through a screen, in that we're quite cognitive, we're almost disembodied. The art of actually bringing ourselves back into our body. I mean, that's the, my, my thing is um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is... Mm refer to as violent meditation sometimes but i think that's why a lot of people refer to kind of dismiss meditation because actually the thought of sitting with your own thoughts feelings emotions some of the things that might make you feel uncomfortable is a hard one to wrap your head around and admittedly i've never given it long enough i don't think because i've never done anything comparable to that i think like 10 minutes or something like that when i've gone through my meditative practice and there might be consistent bout of 60 days or something and then things get in between and it falls by the wayside like most things then we all acknowledge things that we can do a bit bit more often that we recognize is of benefit to us but i think that's why people just dis dismiss it quite often because it's, it's an uncomfortable experience mm -hmm. yeah yeah you, you know you sit and you're still and you close your eyes and then your mind starts going, doesn't it? Your mind starts telling about things you haven't done or telling you that what you're doing is stupid or this is pointless or this is uncomfortable or this is a waste of time. And just being with all that thinking can be really, really uncomfortable. Really what distracting. Did you do that the first time, if you don't mind me asking? What, what gave you the, the impetus to go, right, 10 days, don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to sit with myself. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been on my list for a while. Um, I can really go back to... Um, I traveled around the world uh, for a couple of years, way back in 2015, 2017. And it was one of those things that I remember I, I traveled through India. And when you read The Lonely Planet India, they tell you about Vipassana and all the centers and stuff. And I was like, that'd be amazing. But at the time I was with my ex-girlfriend, it wasn't something that she was interested in doing. So I didn't, I didn't do it. And then I was in Colombia and I, I met this Austrian girl who was sleeping on the bunk above me. And we were talking and she would just, she had pretty much about a month beforehand just come back from doing it in Lima and she did it in, in Peru. And we really talked about it and, and so forth. And then, you know, a couple of years later, um, I had just, it just been on my mind and a friend of mine had, had gone and done one in India. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to do it this time. Um, I, I think I booked a couple and canceled them. So I, I booked one and I was like, I'm, I'm definitely doing it this time. Took the time off work. Um, because I just wanted to experience what it would be like, like how, would, what would it be like? I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but that's the stuff I know. Like, what am I going to get out of this? I'm not clear on that yet, but I want to go into this experience. I want to kind of push myself actually. 
I want to push myself to do this thing that's going to be difficult and see what it feels like, see what I get out of it. I just was really curious in in these sorts of experiences. You know, I'd done uh, plant medicine in, in in South America and also in in Europe, and I just saw that there's a there's always a lot of beauty to be gained by kind of going into a difficult situation consciously and seeing what comes out for you on the other side of experiencing it because there's a lot of learning and growth and the first time I did it was really yeah I really shifted my life in in a lot of quite profound ways and if you can look back what really prompted this I guess this self-exploratory journey which is is quite different I think to most people's experiences but the time that you you decide I'm going to take some time out I'm going to explore myself how does this lend itself to the work that I do with people you talk a bit about that as well the work that you do with people yeah, yeah. So I, I'm a men's dating relationship and intimacy coach. Sometimes I'm trying to find a better title because I work with men in 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 the context of like a lot of it's about what does it mean to be a man? You know, what mm. is how do we think we need to be as men? That comes up a lot in conversation. Even this morning, one of my clients, we were talking about um, setting up a container for himself to feel the emotions that are there, and he said, "Oh." you know, his initial reaction when he thinks about doing that is like, oh, that's not manly, that he'll be seen as feminine by his partner. So the work I do with men is really helping them get a deeper experience of themselves so that they can create a deeper experience of relating with with others, both, you know, inside a relationship and, and in, including their work life and so forth. Quite a few of my clients, I don't actually talk to them about their relationships. We talk a lot about their businesses and mm. the level of creativity um, because, you know, if we ignore our internal world and only focus on the external world, our external world won't really be a reflection of what's not, it won't be a reflection, but we'll be, we can be creating from what we think we should be doing. And, you know, as men, we get this imprint of like, to be a good man, you know, you have to have big muscles and you make lots of money and provide and all these sorts of things. We don't often stop to go, wait, what do I actually really want? What is, what's my calling in life? You know, do I feel called to do that sort of thing? Um, So I guess for me, there's been this, a long, a long exploration. I can take it all the way back to a book I got given when I was 21 years old, a good friend of mine. So we are old friends. We don't speak as much as we used to. And she gave me this book called Conversations with God. And it was probably the first time I read a book that basically said that like, you can be different from your imprint. You can be different from your parents. You don't just have to relive the life that they've lived. And I was like really taken aback by this book, like, wow, wait a minute. So I can change who I am. I can change the way I think. I can change the way I act. And I remember just being quite, I read that book (laughs) at 21 years old. I hadn't read a whole book since I was 13. You know, I just read bits and pieces, you know, trying to get away with it through GCSEs and A-levels. And I was studying computer science, so I didn't really have to read whole books. And I read the book in a whole weekend. You know, she she gave it to me, I think on like a Thursday and by Sunday I'd read, read the whole thing. And it really opened my eyes to like developing myself. So I was reading a lot of books in those years in my twenties, going to various different types of workshops and trainings. Um, not always as intense as I, I have done in the last few years. Um, but I started to get really interested in how people relate. You know, the dating world became really interesting to me because my own dating life wasn't where I wanted it to be. So I was interested in how do we relate? Why do we, why do people respond the way they do? Why are they drawn by people who are having fun and and smiling and engaging? Why do I feel fear when I see someone that I'm attracted to? And I got really curious about all this stuff. And then I guess 
my curiosity never went away. I read a lot of books about the mind and how we think and subconscious and all that kind of stuff. And 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 then I guess after my travels coming back, doing plant medicine, I just became really acutely aware that people were unhappy. You know, I came home and a lot of my friends that I reconnected with, they were like, um, been going through divorce, serious depression, all these things that by the time I was gone. And then that kind of led me, a friend of mine asked me to do a podcast with him. And that started off the, the podcast that I run now. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of led to me being more and more interested in, in me and how I function, mm. but also then seeing that I see the same worries and concerns in other men, men not knowing like, you know, quote unquote, kind of who they are, but it's deeper. Like, how do they relate? They want to, they want to love, they want to find relationships. They want to connect intimately, but the actions they're taking to do that go against what actually will help them get there. And it's like, why are they taking those actions? Is it, they just don't know, or are they, um, is there fear or are they confused and, and starting to kind of delve into that with, with men I work with now. And then seeing that, you know, how we, operate in relationship can often mirror how we operate in our in our businesses in our work lives are we avoiding in relationship are we avoiding in our businesses um and just seeing that even the last few years i've really delved into the 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 nature of kind of our negative beliefs that we hold about ourselves our subconscious our, our shadows and then embodiment and how embodiment can be a really beautiful way for us to come out of to really feel what it feels like to be in the end result that we want you know, or what it feels like to be fully into in fear, because often we might think about fear from a kind of heady way thinking about it, but we don't embody the fear and allow ourselves to fully feel the fear that's there and feel the wisdom that could be there. And then allow us to let go of it. What we do is we just think about it and ruminate and actually makes us feel much, much worse. Yeah, we try to intellectualize everything, don't we? And I think societally, we're we're imposed so much growing up, that subconscious programming, whether that's based on a societal level, our peers, our parents, depending on whether or not you had a positive male role models in your life, that's kind of how we create this male archetype of what it is to be masculine growing up. And I think you're right in that a lot of men do want to do better or from a self-improvement point of view, definitely want to make themselves more emo uh, work on their emotional granularity. I think that's, you know, we talk about men, we talk about communication, uh, but it's often that not for a want of trying, they just aren't equipped with the necessary skills because they've never been taught them. So they do look to certain figures. And I think when we see, you know, not to to point fingers at anyone in particular, but we, we see almost masculinity in a bit of a crisis at the moment and the rise of incels and then looking up to certain people of status, it's rather than blame those individuals. I think the, the broader, greater question is why why are men desperately looking for male role models and what what have they formed these beliefs about themselves over all these years? Where did your own ideas around masculinity and what it means to be a man kind of form? Can you tell me a little bit about your your growing up, if you don't mind? Yeah, yeah. So I my life was devoid of any male role models that I looked up to. It really was. Um, my father is, you know... <laughs> when I was in my teens, I really hated him to be honest. My, my parents have, uh, they were together up until I think I was about three years old. So I have no memory of them living together and being together. But my dad is, um, I'd say incredibly emotion, emotionally stunted, struggles to express himself. He's full of assumptions about other people himself. Um, and that's meant that connecting with him is very difficult. 
he can be very he can be very charming he as it's it's very interesting in the ways that i have a cousin for instance who who loves my dad he's like oh i love uh, i love my uncle he's so much fun and blah 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 and there was a time that i i I actually met up with my cousin when I was in Vietnam. He just happened to be in Vietnam at exactly the same time in exactly the same place as me. And I said, yeah, but imagine that your uncle, my dad was your dad and the things you want from your dad, you know, he can't do. And he paused for a moment. He was like, shit. Yeah. He's unreliable. Like he, he ruled, he, you know, he doesn't nurture. He doesn't express how he's feeling. He doesn't really ask about how you're feeling. I was like, yeah, all those things I didn't get. And, um, and then my mum got married when I was eight years old to another man, my, my younger sister's father, and he was no better. And he was even he was even more disinterested. So I had all these men that I was in close contact with who were disinterested, really disinterested. And then my mum's friends, <laughs> she had they had men in their lives, female friends had men in their lives, and they were no better. They were, you know, avoidant men. They were disinterested. They were unfaithful. You know, they were lying, all these things. So I had this imprint of men just being pretty fucking useless, right? So then when I um when I got into my teens, you start to look for role models and you end up listening to music, you know? You listen to mm. music and you see what you see in the world and you see the men, the boys really around you. And I think I kind of got this kind of subconscious message that, you know, how do I be a man? It's like, oh, well, you just sleep with lots of women and that's fun. And other other men, they look up to you when you do that, you know, and I'm getting kind of brownie points in other men. So I found myself in this cycle of this, a lot of sex, um, a lot of a lot of casual relationships through definitely you know from like 18 to you know 25 26 27 years old like and and it was just i thought that's what it is to be a man make money have lots of sex have women be interested in you um and that's the important things as being a man and you know some of that was informed by the fact that growing up money was not plentiful at all in my household actually and it was very difficult topics so i was like i need to make money and I need to be free to do what I want. You know, that's a big thing for a lot of men. So I was informed by these messages and I think I probably got to about 29 and just felt not unhappy. You know, I saw a lot of your listeners can resonate with this is I wasn't unhappy with my life. My life was good. I had a, I had like a six figure plus paying job. I was freelance. So I only worked 10 months a year. <laughs> um, I traveled a lot, you know, at that time, you know, I had a girlfriend who we, we got on really wonderfully most of the time, like, but I was a bit numb. I was mm. a bit numb. I could feel that there was more. I could feel that my job wasn't satisfying to me. It was just like, meh, it's okay. It pays me. You know, that's how I saw it. But I was, subconsciously, I was always searching for something meaningful to do. I'd always had them some side hustle I was trying to do, you know, I did property for a while, um, I did dating coaching way back in my early twenties. I tried to do some internet marketing stuff. Like I was always looking for a way out constantly. Mm. And then I started to, to, to really search a bit, you know, and, and look at other men who were a bit better. I remember reading all biographies of like Richard Branson, um, Nelson Mandela. Like I went through a phase of reading all biographies, like, you know, I was into football. So I read like Thierry Henry's autobiography and Arsene Wenger's like all this stuff. Cause I was searching I was searching for like answers about being a man. And it wasn't really until my early thirties that I started to be like, ah, this emotionless, not feeling, not expressing, being aloof, this isn't leading to good relationships. And is this hurting me anywhere else in my life? And, you know, I stumbled across, you know, I did plant medicine and that really helped. It cleared away a lot of like 
what was stopping you from expressing. And then I had a lot more work to do in like learning to express, learning to really wildly express like love and joy. You know, I could, I was very charismatic and I could woo women, you know, anywhere in the world, pretty much at this point in my life. But like to get in a relationship and do that relationship stuff of nurturing a relationship, um, nurturing like deep intimacy inside and closeness inside a relationship was really difficult for me. And I, I say a lot of that struggle just came from what I grew up with, like not seeing intimacy, not seeing closeness. And it wasn't, I guess, until kind of post me too, that I really started putting some questions to the way I'd been as a man, because it, it made me look at myself. I remember having a conversation with a few friends, we sat down and I was like, you know, when we look at some of the stuff we're hearing from the, the Me Too movement, like I said to them, I was like, do you look back and question some of your behavior? And everyone went kind of quiet and solemn. And we were like, yeah you know, like we, we, we didn't, no one taught us about consent. <laughs> mm. No one taught us really about boundaries. You know, we used to have ideas that like, oh, women play too hard to get, you know, if she comes around to your place after, after night in the club, then she, you know, she wants to have sex with you, but if she's saying no, she's playing hard to get. So, you know, you, you just got to play, you got to play the dance kind of thing. And then you'd have women telling you exactly the same thing. Oh yeah, we play hard to get, like we want to have sex, but we don't want to say that we do because we don't want to seem too easy. And, you know, it makes you kind of look back and, and really worry. Cause that was one of the things that came up for me in Vipassana was like, is there a woman out there in the world that believes, thinks, or feels that I raped her or that I coerced her into sex? And I sat with this question for a number of days on Vipassana thinking about this on and off. And I come to the idea that like my intention, I feel my intention has always been good to co-create a loving and fun experience for two people, but I can't control someone's perception of the situation. You know, they have their perception based on their experiences and so forth. So there well could be someone out there in the world that feels that woman out there that feels that in the world. And if that ever comes to me, then I must deal with it accordingly, not to kind of dismiss it, but to understand like, what was your experience? This was my experience. And, 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 and also I had to kind of come to peace with that's a possibility that could happen without being defensive. Like, no, 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 that couldn't happen. They must be wrong. It's like, no, I am a coach. I understand how people can look at the same situation, have completely different perceptions of the same situation. Um, and I feel it was important for me in that moment when I was a pastor, just to like acknowledge that, just acknowledge mm. that like, you know, I look back and look at, you know, consent. I, you know, we used to go get drunk, come back to someone's house. You'd have sex, wake up in the morning, have some breakfast, laugh, joke and leave. No one thought about really saying, oh, do you actually want to have sex? Like, how far do you want to go tonight? These weren't conversations that we were having. And I had some with my female friends about this not too long ago. And, and they were saying to me, like, wow, there were times I wanted to say no, but I didn't believe that I could say no. And the man didn't know I wanted to say no because I never said to him that it was a no. So we both had sex and maybe he didn't really want to and, and I didn't really want to. And like, there's that sticky area of like the very gray area of, of that. And actually what's been beautiful is learning obviously about consent and boundaries and so forth where, you know, I kind of, I would say probably in my mid twenties, I, I had an experience with a woman where we were about to have sex. I remember looking at her, she was on my bed and it was just a feeling I got, I was like, she doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to do this. So I kind of backed away and I lay next to her and we, she was like, oh, you don't want to. I was like, no, no, it's cool. We do, I'm feeling quite tired. Like we can just cuddle and kiss. And in the morning, um, 
I think it was either we talked about in the morning or she messaged me afterwards just saying thank you that she didn't want to, but she didn't know how to say it. She didn't want to annoy me or make me angry. And I was like, I would never get angry. You can you can always say no mm-hmm. um, type of thing. And I think that really opened my eyes in my kind of mid to late 20s to like, oh, people don't always say no when they want to say no, right? Mm-hmm. They might go along with things, especially sexually. So I, I kind of maybe changed a little bit of my own behavior in that point, but just from that experience. But you know, before that, it wasn't something that I no man, I didn't have a father to sit me down and go, well, you need to be really mindful. Sometimes when will people please and so forth. It wasn't kind of a, a thing yeah. in conversation. I think from a, a connection standpoint as well, because I always like to bring this back to health and well-being is emotional well-being is such a huge part of that. And I think a lot of the messages that men are exposed to, especially is when we seek intimacy, we don't understand the spectrum of intimacy and we see it as one thing. And that's often sex. So sometimes when we're seeking connection or we're feeling lonely or all of these other things, I wonder if you could just speak to like the spectrum of intimacy and whether you believe, is that, is that something that I've just plucked out of the square? Do, do you agree with that statement that a lot of men just no, think com- intimacy is just that? No, completely agree. And I think the one of the problems more than anything is that the word intimacy, if you look it up in the dictionary, it tells you it's a euphemism for sex. And I think that's the first kind of uh, problems we say we have is that like, the word intimacy is about closeness. Mm. You know, it's about closeness. It's about closeness. So it's like the act of closeness. So intimacy, now, when I really talk to my clients about this, and it's particularly it's particularly um, important, I see in relationships where sex starts to dwindle massively, is this spectrum of intimacy. You've got, obviously, there's a sexual intimacy that we're used to. Um, I'm not going to reel off all of these. There's, I, I did read somewhere recently, it's like 12 different types of intimacy. Mm-hmm. We've got sexual intimacy, we've got physical intimacy, like physical non-sexual intimacy. We have things like uh, conflict intimacy, like how close can we be in conflict? Um, there's experiential intimacy. So it's like having experiences together that foster closeness. Um, spiritual intimacy, so that might be this sharing of spiritual ideas. Um together about the meaning of life and so forth or religion even that, that can bring us mm. closer together uh, intellectual intimacy the sharing of ideas and thoughts um emotional intimacy I, think, oh, I haven't said emotional intimacy which is you know one of the ones that i think as men often we are the least skilled in doing because you know i know we did a podcast before and it's like the idea of the man box and that that men are taught that you know all emotions are basically feminine and that, you know, we shouldn't involve, that's what girls do. Girls do emotions. Boys don't do emotions. They do action and success. Mm. Um, so that kind of grooms us out of the skill of emotions and empathy. But emotional in, emotional intimacy is so, so important for, for a relationship to thrive. Um, you know, the ability to be with your own emotions and to be with your partner's emotions and stay curious and connected is is really the lifeblood of a relationship in my in in my opinion um so there's so many different types of intimacy i can't even remember them all but there's so many different ways for us to experience closeness and that's the thing it's like how can we experience closeness with another person you know like we can experience closeness because i'm sharing about my life and and so forth and and we're here present with each other you know that's a way that we we can share closeness or you know you can do it with an intimate partner you can do it physically and that might just be holding hands 
That yeah. might be a simple act of holding hands, you know, or an arm around the shoulder, or we can do it with our children, you know. You know, kids love physical contact, you know, they love even a little bit of like playful conflict, you know, and playfulness. And that's a way that we foster closeness. But so many of these areas of closeness as men, we don't know how to foster. We don't know how to cultivate them in intimate relationships, but also in friendships as well. Yeah. Because often in male-male friendships, there's a lot of kind of quote-unquote banter, which is a form of, it can be a, a playful form of uh, intimacy. But if that's the only form of intimacy, how do you have a problem? Because there'll be moments where another type of intimacy is required. Like maybe it's emotional intimacy when your friend comes to you, you've had an issue. But if you only know banter and playfulness, you respond banter and playfuls to everything and there's times like you basically become that person who has a hammer and sees everything as a nail when actually what you need is a whole toolbox and that's creating range so that you have a different uh you have different tools for different moments to create closeness and intimacy with people and you might move between them quite rapidly you know it's something i talked to quite a few of my clients about i did a seminar for my partner also for her women and we talked about the importance of being able to move between playfulness and, and empathy and seriousness, because that's a, it's a beautiful kind of polarity to move between. But often as men, we don't have the tools or we're scared to be, we don't know how to feel. We don't know how to express. We get overwhelmed by someone else's emotions or we get overwhelmed by our own emotions as well. So it's um, when we are, when we don't have the right tools for the job of relationship of, of, of intimacy it becomes very relationships become very difficult and uh, you know some men just check out and they're like I don't do relationship you know and I was definitely you know it was definitely a point in my life where I was like I'm never getting in a relationship again mm. yeah I think you just speaking about that resonates so much with some of my own personal experiences some of the accounts I've heard from friends because even I think going through my own development journey and hopefully trying to develop the skills and opening up being a bit more vulnerable talking about stuff that isn't always surface level which i think a lot of people struggle with but it's also understanding that people grow at their different rates because we, we often speak to men about communicating but it's communicating with a trusted party and it's it's really difficult to be vulnerable with no vulnerability reflected back at you because men a lot of men aren't equipped with listening skills so if you have got you're really trying to open up your hearts on your sleeve and then kind of you are having bants thrown in your face it's it's really difficult to cultivate that sense of trust and rather than try that again at the risk of being humiliated i'm just going to withdraw like i know there's although i know i'm unhappy with this classic male archetype way of being that provides some predictability and safety and that i know that's widely accepted by other men whereas this new approach of being vulnerable with other men is that's equally quite scary but that's unpredictable. And I don't really know what the result of that is. Does that mean I'm going to be socially outcast? Does that mean, you know, I'm going to lose that friend on that level? And that's quite a, a scary prospect. Perhaps men aren't always honest about. So I think when we're, we're opening up these conversations often about that revolve around communication, it's actually, can we develop our listening skills as well? Especially, you know, I'm a big advocate of mental health and, you know, the strength in speaking and everything like this, but, you know, who, who are you speaking to? That's important to select as well. And there are different friendships for one of a better phrase that serve different purposes in life. And, you know, it's accepting for what people have the capabilities for. I know some, and are close to really good school friends of mine still, but perhaps I know they're not the person that I will share most intimate insecurities with because of how it might be dealt with. 
that said there are other people i know that i can go to for that sort of thing so in i mean we're talking a little bit more about intimacy between other men i'd really like to delve into intimacy and in, i guess from more of a, a a like heteronormative point of view if it, yeah, that's that's all i can reference that's all my, my my limited life experience allows me and my understanding is you, you know you've got a significant other and you can probably attest to some of that as well mm. yeah yeah definitely and i think the one thing i just say what we're talking about the kind of intimacy between men and this might speak to to kind of intimacy in in you know heterosexual relationships is that that's the most of the relationships i deal in and there's this idea that a sensitive man is lesser than you know a soft is soft is um uh, what's the word i'm looking for is feminine you know mm. and those that kind of message that we hold in our heads as men like oh culturally it's not acceptable to be to to be soft or gentle and like i'll be taken advantage of and all those sorts of things they play into the way that men do then communicate with each other and their partners as well um and often means that one of the things that often happens in partnership is men use their partner as their therapist because it's the only person in their life where they are able to express feelings and emotions. So they use their partner as kind of a, what I call kind of emotional processing unit because they don't know how to process their emotions themselves. So they go to the partner like, I'm feeling really sad today, like, or they're just moping around and the partner goes, what's wrong? And then the partner goes into asking them questions and kind of coaching them you know, in the way that I would coach a client, helping them come to like, oh, the reason why I'm feeling sad is that my boss said something to me. And um, when he said, when someone says that to me, if I make it mean that I'm not good enough. And oh yeah, that I'm not good enough story comes up a lot. And that comes up in my, because my father was never there for me or he was really critical. And then the man's like, oh, cool. I get it. Great. And they go off, but they use their partner to do that all of the time. Mm -hmm. And that becomes really draining on the relationship. And it's why yeah, we should have different areas and different people to go to but in in the realm of intimacy it's like we grow up and i talk about myself and the men that i know of we, we grew up with this very very narrow band of what intimacy is mm -hmm. um i was watching a series of my partner uh i think it's called insecure it's like a hbo series and it's quite funny um but one of the things that we were laughing about is like every time there's a sex scene it's very just like <laughs> Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always like, as I called it, it's like, oh, they all it's always the beat down, you know? It's always, <laughs> it's always a the, the beat down, like boom, 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 boom. There's very little like kissing and caressing and yeah. talking about what they're you're gonna want, or you know, all this thing. And that's what we grew up with, right? We listen to music. Like I, you know, grew up listening to a lot of like rap music and and um and like garage and grime and stuff like that. Yeah. And the way that sex is talked about is like man doing thing to woman, right? Yeah. Man doing to woman. Like, and the words that were used, right? Bang, smash, <laughs> beat down. They're all quite violent terms. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're laughing about it, but they are. And so much of what you say resonates as well, because, you know, I, I grew up in a similar environment. I had no male, positive male role models in my life. And I guess what I look to, uh, exactly as you, I grew up listening to rap music. I looked up to, I was a bit of a comic book geek. So that embodiment of what it was to be a protector, a provider, I wanted to emulate that in some shape or form. And if you didn't, you'd feel effeminate. I was quite a sensitive kid. And I think I got very good at suppressing that through my 20s to the point that I did experience or, or feel anything. But that's that's a whole nother story. But you reference culturally as well, and all my family uh, are Northern Cypriot. So very much culturally amongst the, the Turkish Cypriot community, men 
are a certain way that is accepted perhaps what i wouldn't do um or i wouldn't associate as the norm but accept that culturally that's what it is so there's often i find but with my heritage there's a there's a clash of beliefs there you know like essentially and i'm not speaking for all turkish cypriots here by the way if anyone listening is turkish cypriot as well but essentially like men get on do as they please they go to work they expect their food on the table clean my dirty underpants if i want to go off and womanize you just deal with that you know and we look at other heroes that a lot of boys grow up in a spice bit james bond it's like a, a yeah. womanizing sociopath but you know round of applause for him let's be like james bond yeah so it's it's, it's it's interesting what we're exposed to and how we formalize these beliefs about that i guess if you had some advice uh, is it this inner discernment you find that a lot of men experience just recognize that do you know what this doesn't align with me personally i thought this doesn't feel authentic to me to be this emotionally suppressed stoic stiff upper lip kind of person that actually i want more what occurs is that as men we want to be successful right we want to be successful we look for the blueprints of success like who's who's done it already who can i look at who's successful right and we grew up with and you know movies have it in it you know the terminator movies we see like doesn't doesn't barely speaks barely speaks in terminator you know no one knows it no one remembers the fact that he didn't know that many lines of english at the time and so forth but like we we saw a lot of these super stoic men you know james bond's a good example especially if you've watched the movies the books that i think I've, I've read all the books are slightly different he's a different character in the books but like we grew up with these stoic men who would like you said they would womanize they would have sex with who they wanted to and they and also remember like james bond would walk into a bar see a woman and basically say about five words and then the next scene was them in bed you know <laughs> it was like impossible he was standards <laughs> yeah yeah impossible standards right or so we had all these things kind of programmed into us. And then we have culturally, like, you know, my, my parents are Jamaican, right? So culturally you think of dancehall music and it's a highly sexualized brand of music. Dancehall is highly sexualized. You know, we've had not in car not all carnival not too long ago. And when you watch, it's like the dancing is highly, yeah, highly dancing. sexual, right? It's a very, very sexualized culture. Yeah. Very. And it's the same, the music, it carries the music influences people's thinking. It's there. It's the, um, it influences people, how they relate to each other, how they talk to each other. So it seeps all these things kind of affect us. So what I see is men who they're looking for a blueprint. They see these blueprints of success. There might be musicians, there might be movie stars, there might be entrepreneurs and they're like, okay, to be successful and have what I want, I need to be like that. What we don't see that much of is, is blueprints of men. You know, I use Will Smith as a really good example. And I use an example, you know, unfortunately, you know, what happened at the, the Oscars is a really unfortunate because I think he was a very good role model. And I still believe he is. Role models don't have to be perfect, right? Role models don't have to be perfect. And, yeah. And a role model who's willing to apologize and take responsibility is a very good role model as well. So I still stick by... um I still stick by Will Smith. Will Smith is very open, very honest, very emotional. You know, you see he he talks about the aspects of relationships, the good, the bad, the difficult, the intimacy and all sorts. So I think he's a good role model for people. And also to discern, like, okay, there's some things about him that are not great, you know, like, you know, slapping someone on live TV over, over a joke. You know, we can get into that details of that another time. Mm. It's not how you want to be as a man right mm -hmm. and also he's owned up to that the thing is is that 
we're not always in touch with our inner world to go, hmm, this doesn't feel good because we spent so much time overriding what doesn't feel good because we've been taught that what we feel isn't important. We get taught this through schooling. We get taught it by our parents. We get we go to university and we go to work. And I think work is one of those places where, you know, if you've been in the corporate world, I've worked in corporate environments for a number of years. Like things happen, you're like, well, that doesn't feel good. Like that, that, but we're told, no, follow the process. Follow the process. The process is what okay, follow the process. Or maybe we see things in our own life, of our family, in our in our countries and within the government, or you know. We see in our own family, for instance, you know, I take it from my own life. Like my mum found out that her husband was cheating on her when I was about 15. And I was like, that doesn't feel good to me. And my mum's like, stay out of it, you know, stay out of it. And she's right to say that I was 15 years old and I just wanted to hit him with a cricket bat, you know, but it's like, I've been told to override what I'm feeling and no one's talking to me about what I'm feeling. No one's acknowledging my feelings as important. And then we learn that we shouldn't acknowledge our feelings is important. We should just do what the blueprint says, follow the process, follow what other people are doing. And then we take that into our own lives. So we stop really being able to know what we authentically want. But these messages shout at us, you know, you know, if you're, if like, when we're struggling with our mental health, it's a sure sign that somewhere we are not following what's authentic to us, Right. This has been my experience of when I suffered from depression. It was like, I wasn't speaking up about how I was feeling. I wasn't like going, hey, this job I'm in is really unsatisfactory for me. I need to leave this job. You know, I was like, oh, I have to do this job. I've got no other choice. There was a part of me that wanted to talk to people about how I felt. But I was like, no, you can't talk to anybody because they'll think you're stupid or they'll fire you for speaking up. You know, there's an authentic urge that comes through and then there's a narrative story that I've absorbed from the world about how I should be acting and I, I believe not in all cases but definitely for myself like when I had the biggest troubles it's like I'm not following the authentic voice that's there now the difficulty can come when we're not in touch with our kind of authentic voice our authentic wants and, and desires and what's good for us is we confuse what we we've been told we should be doing or being with our authentic voice like someone might go oh well my authentic voice is like i should stay and sleep with lots of women right that's oh yeah because that's what i desire that's my desire like that's what i want to do so that's authentically what i should do and you know i followed that desire for a number of years and it wasn't one until i peeled back the layers of that in with some coaching and with a spiritual mentor of mine when i started to see it wasn't that i wanted this 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 uh lots of casual sex what i wanted was closeness I was confusing sex with intimacy. I was confusing mm. the act of sex of being physically close, physically inside of someone in union, as I, I say to, to men I work with, with being kind of emotionally connected. I was confusing those two things because I didn't have access to do the emotional connection piece. And I think this is something as men, we, we don't get to peel back the layers and go, actually, what I want is closeness. What I want is to feel deeply connected to somebody um, so I'm chasing this other thing over here because often we might be chasing something like monetary success. Like a lot of my clients are very successful men. They're chasing monetary success. And then when we talk about it, we pull back the layers. They're unhappy with their lives. You know, they've got the money, they've got the partner or they've not got the partner or they've got the houses and all sorts and they're unhappy. And then we pull back the layers and they we always get to similar things. They don't really care about money that much. 
Mm. What they wanted was they wanted to be um, looked up to, respected. They wanted safety and stability, right? They wanted to not have to, they wanted to feel free. They didn't want to have to fear about the future, right? And they've created this, this, this money life, but the stresses that that brings to them hasn't really offset the other things because it's not the external world. They still have the th the thinking. They're still having the ideas and beliefs about not having enough money and creating a lot of stress. So it's this desire to just be successful that's there, but also to really look at like what's kind of underneath that success and, and to touch on inside the world of like sex and intimacy as men, we're taught that like success is in, in sex and intimacy can it come in different ways, but like, is lasting long enough, being bigger and harder than the other man, right? And also these sorts of things was great, exactly. And we have, it creates a huge amount of anxiety for us because, you know, the truth be told, how many other men's penises have we actually seen in person? Like in real life penises have we seen? Now we've probably seen a few in the gym here and there, a few, a few flaccid ones there, but where do we see hard penises? Porn. Hmm. We, see, we see hard penises in porn. And what do we see in porn? men that can have sex for as long as they want right right with the most beautiful women that we appear to see and with the biggest penises because they're either not they're not real they're implants and all sorts or you know in this day and age now they can do all sorts oh, of, stuff so of ai much. yeah I, I mean i i speak to a lot of people about body image and revolving around body image isn't just muscularity and leanness it's this concept of masculinity being linked to size your penis your sexual performance you know in the i, I I, I can assure you it's not my search history, but I've reached a certain age where I get hair replacement treatment ads and I get erectile dysfunction <laughs> treatment ads. And when you're societally and from the media constantly having this stuff drummed down your throat, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's no wonder men are, I guess, trying to live up to these impossible standards. It just so happens to be, although we often talk about men, is like 75% of my listenership is actually female. I wonder mm. whether you'd have some advice if you you kind of, if there is a female listener listening to this now and they suspect that, you know, their male partner wants to open up a little bit more, that there's something underneath the surface that they want to address in terms of intimacy, or they just want to ask in their own language, in their own communication style, on the, the way they listen, how to ask their man for more intimacy. Mm, yeah. So one of the ways it's, that works really well is men respond to praise a lot. And I make men sound like dogs, but you know, truth is, is that <laughs> as men, we often respond quite well to praise. Well, if some, if our partner, <laughs> exactly. Like if our partner's like, oh, you're doing that. I love it when you do that. Like when you do that, it makes me feel so happy. It makes me feel so loved. It makes me feel so connected to you and blah, 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 blah. You're going to hear that and go, okay, I'm do more of that. Yeah, Even yeah. if you don't consciously think of that, you're going to unconsciously think of that. So like, if you're looking for kind of more emotional intimacy, that's one thing. Whenever you do hear your man expressing how he feels about anything, right? About how he feels about his job, how he feels about you, how he feels about life. Like, just praise it. Be really grateful for that. Don't judge it. Don't come in with judgment of like, well, no, I don't think you should feel like that. Or that's not the right way to feel about that thing and blah, blah, blah. Receive and listen. You know, we talked about listening earlier. So listening and praise Listening is is probably the most underrated skill in relationships. That's in my opinion. It's referred so to as a soft listen. skill, isn't it? Often, yeah, like not yeah. A, an essential like life skill is referred to as a soft skill. Mm. Sorry, and because we think, because we hear, because we have ears, 
we assume that we know how to listen. And like, I, I work with couples as well. And I've seen so many instances where I've seen couples have a conversation and one person said something, the other person hears it and processes it through their narrative about themselves or the story they have about their partner. And they respond to the narrative, not to the words, right? And then we we end up in these loops of like argument where everyone's trying to be right or trying to get the facts. But the fact that occurs is that no one's really listening to each other and what's being said, but they're listening through the lens of, through the kind of processing of their um, their story about each other. So like listening is a really important thing, listening to your partner and then being curious, asking questions that are actually curious questions that are not judgmental questions that are not kind of leading questions when they do start talking about how they feel and so forth, like ask, ask them about it. And, you know, when they say they don't know, don't necessarily try and um, give them a psychoanalytic opinion of what you think it is. Actually, you know, allow the don't know. You don't know is a fine answer because we can then work out what's in that space. Um, in terms of like uh, sexual intimacy, one of the biggest myths I see is this idea that in relationship, women's um, libidos dip and, and fall off a cliff in relationship um my experience of my clients is actually the opposite i'm not saying it's always the opposite but there's a there's an even kill i think what happens is one of my thoughts on this is if i keep cooking you dinner this is an example if i keep cooking you food i cook you a meal and the meal is average to unsatisfactory for you consistently right you won't want me to cook for you anymore you might not even feel that hungry, <laughs> right? And I believe that is very true for a lot of, of sexual intimacy and relationships is that partners get together at the beginning and there's this like spark and chemistry and like we ride the high of the chemistry and spark. And then we, we, we don't have to make any effort for that spark and chemistry. And then after that, you fall out the honeymoon period and then you're into this normal period of just like being yourselves, showing your true selves a bit more and so forth. And the effort stops to create these excitable experiences because we, we've kind of think that it just should happen. It should naturally happen. And then the sex starts to, to peter off because one or neither of the partners is making any real effort to make it interesting and spicy and new. And then after a while, the sex becomes boring for both people or one person in particular, and then it stops happening because it's boring for that one person or both people, right? And then they never talk about it. But actually, it's to remember that you can create these peak experiences. You can create this, this deep love, deep connection. It's, it's within our power to do that in our relationships. And one of the most important ways is to have a conversation, is to talk about sex. You know, I know that often men can feel very a lot of shame around sex especially if we're not performing because again we are as men we're taught that we're only as good as our performance you know we've all heard that that saying in football right you're only as good as your last performance mm. <laughs> and like as, as men we kind of take that in and the first of all to say that isn't true but it's to start to have more conversations about what you enjoy or what you used to enjoy what was it that you used to love that you used to do you know yeah like in the sex that you had you know and not I, as a, it's I wonder a hard how many couples have that. They have those open, honest conversations. That just, just like in terms of preference, what they like and what they don't like. And, you know, much to your example you gave before about being in that situation where you weren't sure, you know, the, the, the woman that you was with at the time was was into it or, you know, and you, you felt naturally you had to step back from that. It's our, um, 
are we opening up these lines of communication? But also from a, I think just from a, a basic unmet needs point of view, is if you're constantly in this this perpetual cycle of having your needs uh, your needs not met, you had a really interesting hot take on this. I mean, what, what's your suggestion there? And you, I'll let you elaborate on that. I won't spoil it because I, I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> you brought that up. Mm. If there's continually like an unmet need around sex, and this is this is a, a and this a can be the party right as well because I think you know mm. sometimes women are communicating this this need for emotional intimacy to their men, they're just not necessarily mm. being heard, and vice versa. Yeah, 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 and and like I said, I've worked with clients on kind of both ends of the spectrum. It's start. I I I when I work with with with, with men about this. If they're in a relationship and, for instance, their partners want to have sex for whatever reason, the first thing I go to is like, okay, what are the other areas of intimacy in in your relationship? Where's the, what, how's your emotional intimacy? Like, how are you, um, are you tending to this? You know, are you expressing what's there for you? Are there any unresolved arguments and disagreements that you've just left to fester? Let's start to look at those. Like, how can you start to put some repair around those? Right? Um, is is also to like have you are you having great experiences together like are you choosing to create good experiences where you know you go and do stuff together um we start looking at the environment like what's your what how do you relate to your bedroom for instance where you commonly have sex like is it just this place you both go and sit on your phone before you go to sleep can we change this because you start having date nights can you start creating some spontaneous experiences like could you start expressing how you love her, what you feel for her, how you care for her? Is there some more physical intimacy day to day that you can start to bring in and start to tend to all these areas to create more closeness and connection as well? Um, and I love, there's one thing I love to talk about is like bringing back the energy of the of the beginning. I learned this through when I was learning about uh, a tantra. It's like they have this idea is like bringing the energy back of the beginning because the beginning, it was just chemistry and spark naturally, right? And then that dissipates, but it's like, how can we bring back the energy of the beginning? Maybe there is some music that you used to dance to, or there's a place that you used to go. Maybe it's like a, a bowling alley or, um, you know, it could be any little things that, that can spark the mind into remembering those past beautiful, connected, loving experiences that you can kind of bond over again, because we can re kind of relight the fire. <laughs> um, we really can. It doesn't have to just dwindle out, but we have to keep, you know, to use the analogy still, like we have to keep putting wood onto the fire. We have to keep coming with wood to the fire to 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 keep the the fire going between us. It doesn't just naturally um go forever. It just it takes some conscious effort in inside of relationship. And when it comes to the kind of emotional intimacy, you know, some of this is is a lot about listening, you know, like I think men do often talk. I just think that the 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 people they're with don't always know how to listen to what they're saying. You know, sometimes what they're saying is triggering. Maybe they're talking about things they're unhappy about in the relationship or their job and they don't quite know how to deal with it. You know, mm -hmm. like listening to someone complain and be unhappy for a long period of time can be frustrating. So this yeah, is Sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of this framing is perhaps how like women communicate with, for want of a better word, like avoidant men that are just not tiptoeing around this. They're just not addressing these things. But on that works the other way around, right? You could have this more emotionally attuned man that's trying to, you know, communicate to to his female other half that he wants some just more just more intimacy, not necessarily sex, but there are there's some unmet needs there. And I, I guess the the hot take which you you mentioned before is 
your advice for these people uh, that are in these relationships where those, those needs, no matter how much they try to communicate, it just aren't being met. Mm, yeah, yeah. Talking about the, almost the, the the choices that they have. Yeah, yeah. At this point, it becomes, you know, you want to sit down and have a very honest conversation and speak and be like, this is what I would love. It, what, what One of the problems we often have inside of relationship is when we're describing an unmet need, we go into kind of complaining about what they're not doing. And we we don't give some, we're like, you never do this. It's never and always, right? And actually is to say what you would really love, what you would really like, why you want it, how it benefits you, how it benefits the relationship, how it would make you feel, how it would make them feel. And it's to really make it clear. It's like, this is not criticism because we often you know, even someone asking for what they want can land as a deficiency and criticism. We'd be like, oh, I haven't been doing this. That means there's something wrong with me. We go into this kind of like little boy, um, I'm not good enough. I've been bad. But it's like speaking from a place of what we would we'd love to happen, right? It's like, that's the that's the place I always recommend people to speak from because when we we talk from like, you don't do this, you don't do that, it actually isn't very specific about what we actually do want and, and I think it's really important that we are able to be clear of our partners, like, ah, oh, this is what I would really love, but also not put all the weight on them to, to create it, right? Because it's very easy to say, oh, well, we, we don't have sex, so I want you to seduce me and make me feel sexy and make me feel feminine or, you know, whatever, some of the things that I've heard before. And it's like, well, you want your partner to make you feel something, like, can, do you, how do you, is it their responsibility to make you feel that way? Like, where's your responsibility in like allowing yourself to feel that way? Maybe if you felt you did some work on what makes you feel sexy, that there would be that energy that be transmitted to your partner and they would feel it too. And they would maybe move towards you a little bit, but it's like, how could we cultivate that in ourselves? But I, I really come back to kind of communicating and, and speaking from a place of what we love and also what we love, we loved in the past as well, because it, it allows us to be specific and be like, you know, I used to love it when you did X, Y, and Z. Um, I would love it if you did this, this, and this. It would add so much passion to our relationship, and it'd make me want to do X, Y, and Z more with you, and and so forth. Because then it gives people like something to kind of work with. And I and I know that this also sometimes for some men lands as criticism, and they're like it lands as demand. And, and all these things and it's like it's in but it's important to be clear mm. to be really clear because you know I've worked with people who are on the verge of divorce and when I've spoken to them and I'm like hey have you said this thing about how you feel and what you want and they're like well no they should know mm. no they don't know they don't know you haven't said it to them you haven't been clear so many they don't know use that example they should know I expect this yes. yeah they should mind read Absolutely. And then with the the unmet, we were talking about from a monogamous standpoint, but you you were suggesting that it was it wasn't you that was suggesting it was something that you had read. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was someone I did some work with a sexological body worker, I did a session with him. And, you know, one of the things that often happens in relationship is that as we talked about one partner no longer wants to have sex. And if one per partner no longer won't have sex and there's nothing that was, you know, their libido is just gone and nothing that would pers persuade them into that, but the other person still does, you have a real 
dilemma on your hands, right? You've got one person who wants to be sexually active and you have one person who doesn't want to be. And if the person that doesn't want to be isn't willing to compromise in some way, then you potentially have this dilemma where, okay, you're almost holding someone in a relationship when they have needs that can't be met in the relationship. And then you have to start having conversations about, okay, so would we be open to opening up our relationship? You know, whether that's opening up as an open relationship um, or whether you would be happy for someone to see, you know, it could be even a sex worker, for instance, to have this need met. And that could be a conversation for some relationships. Like I know some people hear that and they're like, oh my God, I can never, never allow that to happen. But it's that question of when we're in a relationship and there's a need that's not being met and the partner is refusing to meet that need, especially if it's a very like, um, not so reasonable need because things are unreasonable and reasonable, but there's something that's very clear that they don't want to do, you know, sex, for instance, and it happens, you know, in relationships where one person just no longer wants to have sex. If there's nothing that can be done by the other partner to, uh, the only word that comes on mind is entice, but it's not the word I want. It's like to, that would make them want to like this, you know, they want more emotional intimacy. They want more closeness, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. You don't then want to coerce question... anyone into something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, it, you know, if there is a, a sexless element to the relationship, then we have to say, okay, what is it? Why don't you want to have sex? What is what is not present for you? What do you need to feel that you want to have sex? And often there can be safety. Safety can be a thing. There would sometimes there's, you know, all the different types of intimacy that we've talked about, communication, all that kind of stuff. But even then, sometimes people are in relationships and they're like, no, everything's great. I just don't want to have sex anymore. It just doesn't interest me. I want to have sex maybe twice a year, right? And twice a year puts you in the band of a sexless um, relationship. I think I think technically, if you have sex less than 10 times a year, you're in a sexless relationship. Okay. Um, I, I didn't even know there was a distinct like, number. Yeah, yeah, I think there is. It's, it's, and it's not as low as you might think it is. Um and then you have to ask, like, okay, can we open up the relationship so that partner can be fulfilled sexually, right? And do we need to put some boundaries around that? You know, is it going to be um, they're going to see a sexual surrogate or they're going to see a sex worker or they're going to have another partner, you know, or um, or do we go to sex parties, right, together and that partner can have sex with other people? Like, there's all different dynamics that you can create, but it's being open to having that conversation. Like, I believe that, that's probably on the rarer end of things, right? When it comes to sexless relationships, like some of the sexless relationships, I've worked with people where one of the partners experience um, a lot of sexual trauma, for instance, and, and, and sex is almost traumatizing for them to have, you know, and that can be worked through, right? That doesn't have to just mean no sex has to happen or where one partner is really resentful at the other partner, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very common one. One partner's severely resentful of a partner's behavior uh, through the, the marriage or relationship and no longer wants sex and almost uses sex as a bit of a tool to, to bargain with. Um, again, you can work through the resentment. You can do work there. But there are some instances where it's just something that someone's not interested in. They don't get any enjoyment from and they, they, they're not interested in. And you have to find ways to, if it's important to you, to keep the relationship together. Mm -hmm. Right. If you both want to be in a the relationship, then finding a solution to things in, in my eyes and in many of the people I work with is, is paramount. It's like, how can we find a solution? And always, you know, it sounds very masculine, isn't it? To be solution orientated. But there are times when it's really useful in a relationship. It's like, how can we find a solution to this? What? Let's do some blue sky thinking, you know, without judgment, without story. It's like, okay, 
you know, to so we can throw out ideas without judging them as like good and bad, so that we can kind of come to um something that works for both of us that, so that we can keep our relationship going and keep loving each other. And it doesn't push someone to say cheating, for instance. Like I'm not yeah. saying one person pushes someone from cheating, but if you're in a relationship and you you have sex once a year, for instance, right? And you want more and you're providing, you know, love and support and connection and all the things your partner's asking for, and they're just not interested in sex, then there there has to come a point where you're like, what can we do about this? How can we both feel fulfilled in this this relationship? Yeah, that's that's I, I can I I I'm not ashamed to admit a few of those examples are squirming myself, but I imagine a few people listening to this squirming about potential uncomfortable conversations, but it's it's a really fascinating topic of discussion and I appreciate your candid discussion of it because I think what I wanted to do with this podcast, especially as you know, I kind of mentioned to you off air is like, I didn't want the rigidity of imposed questions just to organically like let the conversation come out. And I think so much of that is what's desperately needed in society. And from, you know, from a, a male on male intimacy point of view as well, I just really appreciate you. So thank you so much for sharing all that. If someone, and I'm sure there'll be many, want to find out a little bit more about you, your work, where can they go, David? Yeah, yeah. So the the first place I usually point people is Instagram, because that's the place where I'm most kind of active. And you can read through all my different posts about, you know, men, dating, relationship, intimacy, connection, and so forth. Um, so that's the post, first place. That's at the authentic man underscore. Um, and then usually the second place I point people is to my podcast, uh, The Authentic mm. Man with David Chambers. I've got probably over 200 podcast episodes yeah, it's a great podcast talking about all these bits and pieces about men and and you'll find something for for everything and if you if you're already interested in listening more then hit me up on instagram if there's a topic you want to know more about then i can let you know and I can point you to a particular podcast episode yeah because much of what you discuss as well i think especially i'm reflecting on mine that like you know i've, I've been in a long-term relationship and some of these things you just don't discuss. Like, I don't mean necessarily from only reflecting when there's problems. I'm not suggesting there's problems, by the way. Not that my wife will listen to this. But um, more that this you, you grow together and you grow at different rates. And sometimes your lines don't perfectly align together. And you, you veer off in terms of life priorities, work focuses and things like that. But are you constantly having these conversations and reevaluating these things over time? Which I, I don't think a lot of people do. And I think that is because there's not a lot of discussion around there. So I thank you again for your time. If anyone has enjoyed this, please do your, your due diligence, share on Instagram and all that stuff. So it's the only way it reaches more people. So yeah, thanks again for your time, David. You're welcome.